everybody. Good to have some uh, folks from out of town visiting. Uh, welcome. We're just glad to have you. My name is Randy, and uh, you are joining us today on what is a bit of a hard left turn uh, because we were racing towards the end of a series, and rather than finish that series, I'm doing, doing a, a hard left here. Original plan was to finish our series on the revolutionary life, and that message was all done and in the can and ready to go when some people who have real express permission in my life to wave a flag, waved a flag and said, I think you're missing something. And so I backed up a little bit and I just kind of revisited and realized I really do want to kind of shift gears here just a little bit. Um, I can finish that series kind of later on whenever, but today I want to bring a message called The Focus on Israel for three reasons, and we'll talk more about this as we go along. But here's a couple of reasons why we're going to focus on Israel. First of all, the geopolitical temperature for Israel is reaching a boiling point. In our lifetime, Israel will boil over. And you're like, Randy, what do you mean exactly by that? I don't fully know exactly what that will look like. But given the geopolitical events around Israel, something is going to happen. Uh, aside from that, internally, the domestic temperature of Israel is not far behind. Historically, they've been very unified internally, but they've been under a lot of pressure from the outside. Now, from the outside and from the inside, Israel is in a rough spot. Finally, there is a worldwide initiative within the church right now to pray for the people and the country of Israel. And we're going to talk about specifics about that in just a little bit. But when I decided to talk about this, one of the things I did was explore how others are talking about it. I didn't want to just talk in a vacuum or give you information that maybe just seemed presented differently than what the rest of the church is talking about right now. And I ran across a message by a friend of mine, Lee Cummings. Lee pastors in Kalamazoo, pastors a church called Radiant. It's loosely connected to the one here in Kansas City. And Lee's been a good friend to the bridge, probably in ways you don't understand, in that when I reach the end of my rope, Lee is one of the guys that I call and go, I need more rope. And he's been a, a good advisor and a good friend to me along the way. So he's had quite a, a fair amount of influence. Uh, Radiant in Kalamazoo, in my opinion, walks, uh, I don't want to say the balance, but the embracing of both the word and the spirit, maybe better than any other local congregation that I've really had a good look at. They deeply, deeply believe in the gifts, believe in activation of the gifts, experiencing of the gifts, and in theology and scholarship. And they do both of those things. It's not a balance where you try and and not do either. It's They really try and do both. And I look at them as an example of, of how well it can be done. So all that to say is I listened to Lee talk about this, and I found Lee saying all the stuff that I wanted to say better than I probably would have thought of to say it. And so I reached out to him. I'm like, Lee, this message really had an impact on me. Can I kind of borrow the framework of this for Sunday? And he said, oh, yeah, of course. I'd be happy to. I have not done this in 33 years. I've never done this. Musicians can get away with this. Okay? If musicians like somebody else's song, they can sing that song, and it's called playing a cover. When preachers do it, it's plagiarism. Okay? Which is completely different. Except I'm telling you I'm doing it. 
And I told Lee, I actually asked Lee, can I use some of this material? He said, absolutely. He sent me his notes. They were almost no help. It's so interesting. No, they really weren't. Like, the, the, the skill and the art of preaching are fascinating to me. What's particularly fascinating to me is how differently it can be done. And how you find people who do it differently. And Lee preached this phenomenal in-depth message. Now I've set the bar pretty high. I mean, he preached it phenomenally. It was phenomenally when he when he when I got it. And uh, he preaches it, and he sent me his notes. And I, I I emailed back. I said, "Are these the notes he handed out, or the notes you preached from?" He goes, "Oh, those are the notes we preached from." I'm like, "I give my congregation more notes than you took to the pulpit. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this." So what you're getting this morning, nobody can be surprised by this. If later, you know, don't start an email thread. Did you know he got that from somebody else? I'm telling you, I got that from somebody else, and you should be glad. Because had I done it myself, I don't know that it would have come off this way. Sound fair? Everybody know what you're getting into? Okay, the information belongs to the Lord. Lee compiled it. I'm preaching it. Someone else make it water and somebody else make it grow. Okay, there we go. I just, I'm, I'm big on, one time, like six months ago, I accidentally pulled a quote and, and I used the quote and forgot to give attribution and it drove me crazy. Like on Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm emailing some of our leaders going, I, I, I repeated some, but they're like, just clarify next week. Nobody cares. I'm like, that's driving me crazy. So I'm just being very honest. This all was mostly assembled, mostly assembled by Lee. And I don't want you to be confused. Lee is tall and distinguished, and that's where our similarities end. Beyond that, we're just very different people. Okay. So with Lee's notes and my notes, let's look at the focus on Israel. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would reveal to us your heart for a people and a nation. And that they would be as dear to us as they are to you. If we're to reflect the character of you, then we've got to understand how you feel about these people. So open our hearts to that. In Jesus' name, amen. As believers, even though we know that our faith is 2,000 years old, you have to admit what we practice as Christianity is very contextualized. It's very Americanized. And I'm not saying that's inherently bad. Of course, we're going to sing the kind of music that we like. You go to other countries, they sing different music. Or other cultures, they we make it our own. But sometimes we've made it so much our own that we forget that we have actually inherited this faith from another culture. The faith that we practice here in this room actually began 2,000 years ago in Israel within the city limits of Jerusalem. Our faith that we practice will culminate one day in Jerusalem with Jesus on a throne leading the nations of the earth in, within the city limits of Jerusalem. So our Americanized, we like this kind of teaching, we like this kind of music, we like to be in these kinds of rooms, this is how we work. The Lord does not have a problem with that, but he wants us to remember what we are exercising came from someplace else and is going back to someplace else. Christianity is not about the chief's kingdom. All right, there will not be a millennial draft. It's important for us to know because the faith that we practice, even though we're in Kansas City and our, our roots may go down deep even in this city or in this American culture is from a place very different. 
When we think of the Jesus movement, and I've even used this language, we think of the 60s and 70s in California. But the real Jesus movement started in a very different place. It started with three things. It started with a service in which they baptized 3,000 people in Jerusalem. That's where the church kicked off. It began with a command to go to the ends of the earth from Jerusalem. The command was from there. It began with a promise that Jesus would return and fulfill God's promises to the people of Israel in Jerusalem. So this morning, I want to think about that place and those people and how they matter to God and how it relates to us. Israel is a unicorn among nations. Geopolitically, historically, culturally, there's nothing like it. And the combination of its uniqueness and jealousy among the other nations of the earth make it for one of the most mysterious and easily misunderstood situations on the planet. Because it's different. Now, especially those of us who are not Jewish or who don't come from a Middle Eastern context, we read the Old Testament and we say, okay, I see why it's important here, but why does it matter now? Why does Israel and the Jewish people matter to the church in Kansas City? We understand, we get the Old Testament, we read it, and the whole first half of the Bible is about God dealing with these people that he chose for himself. They are the subject of his focus and his covenants and his whole plan of redemption. We read, you know, all, you read through it all the way up to the maps. It's all about them. And we get that. And into the New Testament, we understand that Jesus was, okay, he was Jewish. He came from the line of Judah. We understand that he was an Israelite. John chapter 1 verse 11 says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Who were his own? It was the Jewish people. His first disciples were Jewish. Jesus did all of his ministry inside of Israel. And we know that the church began as being very Israel-centric culturally. It was about 30 years before there was a substantial number of Gentiles in the church. Those first 30 years, it was almost exclusively Jewish. Then, around the year 70 AD, something happened that began a rapid change on the earth and in the history of the world. Now, we don't understand sometimes how quickly things can change until they're done, and we look back and go, oh, that all happened, right? Some of you had major life changes, and you didn't realize it at the time. You just thought, this is just chaos. And then two or three years down the road, you look back, you go, that's when it happened. In 70 AD, the Romans came, surrounded Jerusalem, destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. They took most of the Jewish people that they had not killed, and they shipped them off to the other parts of the Roman Empire. So they just devastated the city and hauled most of the people off. The next few hundred years were repetitive for the few that stayed. Imagine if Kansas City is invaded by, who's most likely to invade us? Arkansas. Invaded by Arkansas, right? They're invade, we're invaded by Arkansas. They surround us. They 
blow everything up that they can. They capture most of the Kansas Cityans. They send us off to the Arkansas Kingdom, whatever else they probably captured. And there are only a few people who are left in the city who live a life very different than they did before, right? It's very dystopian. They live in that, but a few stay. A few of them rebuild a temple, the second temple. And in 168 BC, they had gone through this before. Antichius Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem and captured the city, marched, destroyed the Jewish temple. This all had happened a couple of times. And with this happening over and over and over, it appeared that Israel as a nation and the Jewish people were done, but the church kept going forward. So in other words, the Jewish culture disappears, the Jewish people disappear from the land of the Jews, but the church continues to grow, now largely influenced by Gentiles or non-Jews. So you're like, all right, I read the Bible, I read about Gentiles, what's a Gentile? Gentiles are like the AARP, you may already be a member, okay? That's like, it's that easy. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. That's everyone else. It's kind of a, kind of a lump them all in word. And we see Christianity growing among the nations and among the Gentiles at the same time when it begins to decrease among the Jews because they're scattered to the far corners of the earth. Now, when it looked at that point like God was done with Israel, people had to reconcile that with the scriptures. How many of you know that when life doesn't make sense, sometimes you come up with crazy explanations for what happened, right? Like when you, okay, insert tab A into slot B and it doesn't fit. There must be a part missing. Like you make things up to make reality fit. And in essence, that's what the church did with the promises of God to Israel when the influence of Israel waned within the church and the nation of Israel ceased to exist on the planet. How are you supposed to read these promises and figure out how does this work? Because surely not. And the answer that the church fabricated to make everything fit together was what we call replacement theology. Replacement theology says that the church has replaced Israel in the heart of God and the plan of God for the nations. I remember hearing this as a young pastor. What do you do with Israel? Well, you know, that's, that's all Old Testament. All the promises of God for Israel, now that's for the church. That's, and well, what about Israel? Well, now, and it teaches that Israel has been replaced by the church. All of the promises in the Bible made to Abraham and his descendants and Isaac and Jacob. All those promises about the land and about the redemption and the kingdom have all been spiritually transferred to the church, which was now primarily Gentile and had nothing to do with Israel anymore. They would say that Israel is under judgment, that Israel rejected their Messiah, and therefore God doesn't want to have anything to do with them. Now, in addition to being wrong, we actually see in history the intervention of God on behalf of the Jews and the nation of Israel, even in recent decades. Now, we'll talk about it in a minute, but in the 40s, after not having been a nation for over a millennia, Israel reemerges on the national stage as a nation. That's never happened before. Fast forward to 1967. They are just a fledgling nation. They're not even 20 years old as a nation. They're much smaller than they were. And they're surrounded by three Arab states or countries, Jordan, Egypt, and Syria. 
And these three nations are threatening them. And like David, who took the battle to Goliath, the nation of Israel, small, underpowered, outmanned, outgunned, goes on a preemptive attack, and they capture the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank of the Jordan, the old city of Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights from these three other countries in six days. It's called the Six Days War. And if you want interesting reading, read secular accounts of it, because there really is no explanation for this. It's like... I read one writer that said it was almost like a comedy of errors. Every other nation made mistake after mistake after mistake. We would call it like a spirit of confusion had fell on them. And they were pushed back, and Israel almost instantly greatly multiplied its land holdings in the Middle East. So God's hand has been on them even in their rebellion. Now, the problem with the idea of replacement theology is, in addition to it not being true, it writes out the people of God out of the storyline and replaces them mostly with Gentiles. Ironically, this theory was cooked up by Gentiles. Can you not see through it when somebody rewrites the story and makes themselves the darling? The problem is that this doctrine of replacement theology has been the dominant theology taught in seminaries, in Bible colleges, in many churches, certainly in mainline uh, churches, mostly evangelical churches, if they think about Israel at all, and most of them don't, because they haven't been taught to, they think of it in this way. That was what God did then. We are what God is doing now. Many of the leading theologians, pastors, seminary scholars, even major denominations teach this idea of replacement theology. And here's where it really gets dark. If God has written off the Jewish people, we can too. And that goes back as far as medieval times. In the medieval period is a dark hour for the church of Jesus. Because Jews during the medieval time were persecuted horribly all through Europe. The church of Jesus spent a thousand plus years brutally persecuting Jewish people. Anti-Semitism as we know it is rooted in this idea of replacement theology and that we are something that they are not. Now, are, do we say that everyone that holds to this theory is an anti-Semite? No, it's not. I'm just saying the, the pushback against Jews has been written under that idea. And we're living in a time period now that for a lot of Jewish people around the world, probably 10 million of them, look at Christianity not as the fulfillment of God's promise to them, which it is, but they look at the cross as a symbol of a death warrant for their people. When we say Christianity, they think Middle Ages, Knights of the Templar, or the Iron Cross of Adolf Hitler. That's what they think because a lot of those things were done under the banner of Christianity. We could say, oh, those weren't real Christians. They told the Jews that they were. And you can imagine the pain and the discomfort and the fear that the idea of Christianity brings to Jewish people. So it's important as a church that we recognize 
replacement theology and understanding the significance of Israel so we can partner with God for his plan that he has and always has had for the nation and the people of Israel. And he will ultimately fulfill it when he returns. Some of you are wondering, how does this affect me? Like, I'm just trying to read my Bible and get my kids not to kill one another while someone drinks the last bit of orange juice. Like, how does this apply to me? This is not one of those life application messages that you're going to walk out of with four things to do. Okay, so those of you that are waiting for the four things to do, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not going to have the, This is a worldview formation message. All right, there are certain times we have to just pause and talk about who we are and what we believe that will influence a hundred of those other decisions. And uh, I learned this sometimes the hard way. Uh, years ago in a different city, we had a brand new little congregation. We were about a year old, and I preached on the, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I had one of our key leaders come to me later and goes, we're that kind of church? I'm like, where have you been? Yes, for that. But it, it convicted me of, oh, no, I have, not, I have not addressed some of these worldview issues. And I, I don't want to go any further without anybody understanding where we stand on the nation of Israel and the people of Israel. Israel is not a secondary issue to the church. It is a present and increasingly future issue for us as God's people and also for God's redemptive plan on the earth. They play a massive part. And this is one of the big reasons why. God keeps his covenants. He, why? That should not be a hard thing to like, get our head around. But it is. In the book of Genesis, we see that God steps into a world that is broken, and he could have left it to be you know, just on self-destructo mode if he wanted to. He shapes the earth, he creates the earth, he makes man. He goes, huh, that did not go well. And he could have walked away, but instead, he inserts himself into the storyline, and he makes an everlasting covenant with a man named Abram. Genesis 15, 18 and 19. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. He goes, all those people's land, I'm giving that to you. And God established a covenant with Abram and said, all of this land is a down payment on the covenant that I'm going to establish with you. And he reiterates it in Genesis 17 when he says again, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through all generations for, get this, an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your children after you. Everlasting covenant. Now, we've talked here before about the idea of the difference between covenants and contracts. We are a people of contracts. When we make a deal with someone, we make a contract. A contract is a very legal way on paper of saying, I don't trust you. I don't think you're going to do what you said you're going to do, so let's write it down. So if you don't do what you said you can do, I can go find someone to make you do what you said you were going to do. A contract, you got to have them, but they're essentially written into the idea of, I, don't, I need clarity here. I don't think you're going to believe you're going to do what you're going to do. A covenant is different in that it is saying, I will do what I say unto you, or it will mean death to me. 
A covenant is not done out of mistrust, it's done out of commitment. I'm committing to you that to my own personal exhaustion and the full use of my resources, I will do everything I can to do what I said I would do, and if I don't do it, then I, I just cease to exist. It's interestingly, when, when God made a covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, it was not a two-sided covenant. It wasn't. Covenants in the Bible are largely two-sided. It means you and I come together, make it a covenant to one another. But this one was one-sided. Now, marriage is a covenant. We understand that marriage, sometimes divorce takes place. Somebody breaks that covenant. When one person breaks the, that covenant, the other person is released from that covenant. But this is a one-sided covenant that he makes, and he calls it an everlasting covenant. For us to believe that God is done with Israel is to say that God broke his word to them because he was more enamored with us than he was with them. That began to be fulfilled when Jesus came through the lineage of Israel as a savior way back then. But in this covenant in Genesis, when he separated the animals, he told Abraham, take the animals, cut them in half. That's how we make a sacrifice. That's how we make a covenant. It's a normal way of doing this. And then normally the two people would walk between the carcasses of the animals and they would say to one another, see these dead animals? This is what becomes of me if I don't withhold my if I if I don't hold up my end of the covenant. Except he tells him, I'm going to do this alone. You stand there, and God appears like a torch and passes through the animals, makes a one-sided covenant to Israel. And he says, It is an everlasting covenant. What he was saying is. Abram, I take upon myself that no matter what you do, I will fulfill this covenant to you and to the descendants to come. And if I don't, I'm no longer God. That's a heavy promise. Can you imagine saying to your kids, I will do what I said to you, and if I'm not, I'm no longer your father. No, he makes this one-sided covenant, and his pledge is that if he breaks the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... That's the day he ceases to be God. Jeremiah talks about it this way. If I forget you, and if I forget my covenant promises, my hand may no longer work. I can't even intervene for you if I don't keep my promises. So God makes this everlasting covenant with Israel, yet most of the Old Testament is about the journey of Israel being unfaithful to God. God had told them that if they're faithful, they would dwell in the land, and he would bless them. He'd make them the head, not the tail, and the first, and not the last. And then they would rebel against him. Can you imagine the gravitas of Israel when God promises them he'll keep up his end of the bargain no matter what? Like, what does that do to you? But they would regularly reject him. And he would discipline them through geopolitical circumstances, other nations coming in, always using the least severe means he could, although sometimes it was pretty severe. Parents, you know when you are disciplining your children, discipline goes from a 1 to a 10. You don't want to go start at a 10. You start at a 2. You start at a 4. If you get to a 10, this has not gone well. God gets to attend with them a number of times because they're so rebellious. And in those times, he would bring the surrounding nations and empires to judge them and even haul them off into captivity till they came to their senses, stopped worshiping idols, and then he would return them to the land and he would bless them. 
He would rescue them, take them back to the promised land. This happens over and over through history. We see this cycle of them rebelling, leaving, being driven out, repenting, being brought back. It goes over and over and over again. God warning them through the prophets, them refusing to repent, them going through centuries of being exiled and then coming back. They'd cry out and admit they're forgetting the covenant with God. He would hold up his portion of it. God would send a Moses or a Zerubbabel or even sometimes a Cyrus who was an ungodly king to finance their return to the promised land. Ultimately, God sends his son as his final word, as a prophetic sign. He sends his son who comes in the form of a Jewish man. And he goes to the cross to remove their sin from them and set this all to rest once and for all that this covenant was better than that covenant. Jesus didn't come just to get them out of trouble. He came to make things right once and for all and largely they rejected him. Now a part of the result of their rejecting him is this invasion of the Roman soldiers and the devastation of Jerusalem that followed the centuries after that and suddenly Israel was no more. In May 14th, 1948, Israel once again by charter becomes a nation. It was gone. It wasn't just that it was devastated and a few people it was they completely obliterated the country. There's over a thousand years where there is no Israel. And the countries of the world at the closing of World War II carved out a land and said, that's yours, unknowingly fulfilling the promises of God. Do I think those heads of state were thinking this is what God wants? No, I think he moves their hand. And he carves out a place in the Middle East, their traditional land, and in 1948, they came back as if from the dead. It's never happened before. When I say they're a unicorn of a, of a country, never has a country disappeared, really, for almost 1,900 years, and then is reestablished in the same place where they were before. That alone is a signpost to our generation that we are wrestling with things theologically and culturally and uh, world world events-wise, that our grandparents never struggled with. They never had to think about that. My great-grandparents never thought about Israel. Why? Because it was not there. So for some of you who are going, well, you know, I've been in church. It was a, a well-established church. It was around there for a long We never heard any of this. Yeah, they never had to think about it. Welcome to the new reality. God keeps his covenants. And he's getting ready and moving his hand on behalf of Israel right now. Now, he has a covenant with them. However, he also has a controversy with them. You love your children, and there are times you've got some issues, right? It can be both. And he loves Israel, but he's got a, con he's got a controversy with them. Micah 6, 1 and 2, the King James says it kind of poetically, but very strongly. Hear now, hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise and contend before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy. And ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord have a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. What's his controversy? Some other versions say indictment. That might be a better word for us to understand. You know what it is to be indicted. Maybe not personally, but you understand what that means. 
That means that somewhere a court has decided there is enough evidence against you to hold a trial. And the Lord says, I have a controversy or I've got enough evidence against Israel to make an argument against them. And the evidence has been piling up. The Lord sees the beginning from the end, and he fully knows that Israel will return to them when they experience enough pressure and pain. But until then, he's like, we've got issues. He has allowed and will allow them to go through difficulties and troubles and trials and what the Bible calls tribulation. Some of you have been very nervous about the word tribulation. The whole idea just cooks up, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, big charts on the wall and things that, let me simplify, the word tribulation means troubles. So he says, there is trouble coming, and through that trouble, Israel will return to me. But until then, he still has this controversy with them, because he's saying, I have been faithful to you, and you have not been faithful to me. So there's going to come a time when you cry out to me and ultimately I'm going to save you and deliver you. Here's one way we know that Israel comes to their senses regarding who the Lord is and what he's done for them. Zechariah 12:10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. There's coming a day when God is going to pour out a spirit of grace on the Jewish people in their darkest hour, and they're going to look around. They're going to be surrounded by nations of the earth that are hostile towards them, and they are going to mourn for the one that they have pierced. That's Jesus. For this firstborn son, that's Jesus. And Jesus is going to return and rescue them. And many of Israel will be saved. Ultimately, God's going to bring them to a point of difficulty. And in order for this all to take place, and this is just a panoramic view of the history of Israel and where it's going, from the beginning of God starting with them to where we are all now. So, okay, if that's all true, if God isn't done with Israel, and he's got a controversy about them, and some of you are still trying to get your head around the idea that we are not the point of the whole story, if that's all true, what's God's agenda for Israel? Okay, so what? If you have your Bibles, open to Romans 11. If not, verses will be up here. Well, Romans 11 is a difficult passage if you've studied it wrong. Okay? If you've looked at it and got... I don't know how... How many of you know it's easier to learn something you have not done than to unlearn something you've learned wrong? Right? I grew up riding dirt bikes. Love motorcycles. Just grew up on them. And by the time I was 17, I switched to... Uh, these three-wheel ATVs, okay, Widowmakers. They don't even, you can't even buy them anymore. They were so dangerous. Everything I knew about riding a motorcycle was wrong about riding an ATV. The way you lean, where you put your weight, I spent an entire summer crashing a lot because I had ridden very aggressively on a motorcycle, and now to ride this thing aggressively, you had to lean different. You had, it was just completely, it was awful. So some of you are going to crash. I'm just telling you. Because you've learned some of this different. If, you looked at, if you've ever looked at the idea of replacement theology and go, well, maybe so. Maybe we are the new Israel. Put your helmet on. Because this is going to be bumpy. For those of you that have never thought about this, it's actually going to be pretty simple and pretty plain. 
Romans 11, 1 and 2. I ask then, has God rejected his people? If you know nothing else about the Bible, you just read the Old Testament, read the New, but you've got some idea. Who is he talking about there? Jews. Okay, it's real simple. Remember, he's, has he rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite. He even backs this up. It's not just what you think it is. He says it is what you think it is. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? He now appeals to God against Israel. How can we read this in the New Testament and write theology books that say that we replace Israel? He's clear. God has not forgotten them. Forgotten them. Drop down to verses 7 and 8. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. He's talking there about the Gentiles. He's like, some of you figured it out. You found it. But the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. It says that Israel failed to obtain what it was looking for, but somehow the Gentiles, the elect, were able to obtain it. We managed to lay hold of it and believe in it, and we know Jesus and have faith for Jesus as a Messiah that they did not see, but our seeing him didn't make him a Gentile. The fact that we saw him and they didn't does not remake him in our image. He's still who he was. And Romans say that because of their failure there, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that couldn't see, ears that couldn't hear. It's a spirit of confusion that really continues to this day. Verse 25 says, now he's speaking to the Gentiles here. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. He's like, listen, God is not finished with Israel. He's got an everlasting covenant with them. He's got a controversy with them right now because when they rejected Jesus, but a small number of those that followed Jesus stayed with him, but the larger of the group rejected him. And God has allowed a hardening to come onto their heart for a period of time. And he also opened the door to Gentiles for a season who have now filled the church. His original plan was through Abraham to raise up a nation that was different than all nations and that would reveal the Lord to everyone on the earth and teach them about God. But when Jesus came to Israel and they rejected him, the church became largely Gentile and took the gospel around the world. Nevertheless, verse 25 tells us that hardening of the heart is not forever. It only happens until what's called the full number of Gentiles comes in. In other words, God says, harden the heart of the nations of Israel and the Jewish people, discipline them for a time. I'm going to deal with bringing the gospel to all of the Gentiles. And when that number is full, when the, the number of the non-Jewish world that, that he has in his mind is full, the hearts of the Jews will be softened. And he says, I pre-know that many of them will come into the kingdom. Once all nations hear the gospel, that's what Jesus told us to do, take it to all the nations, they all have a chance to hear about God, God is going to turn his attention back to the nation and the people of Israel, and that heart is going to soften, and many of them will come to him. He will fulfill his promises to them. Meanwhile, we live in a Romans 
1117 world that says, but if some of the branches were broken off, that's the Jews, and you, who's he writing to? He's writing to the Gentiles in the church of Rome. It's almost entirely Gentile. If you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive. He's like, who's grafted in? The Gentiles are grafted in. You were not a main part of this branch. You're here by grace. But he has not forgotten the original branches that were cut off. Don't think that you're the new branch. You're grafted in, but he had a plan for those people. Let's not let arrogance dominate our heart because there's coming a day when God is going to graft them back in and those, those branches are going to flourish. And how we respond to those branches will say volumes about our own heart. Romans eleven twelve says, Now if their trespasses mean riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, in other words, if we got grafted in because they rejected him, how much more will the full inclusion be? Verse 15 says, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but by life from the dead? Can you imagine the party when Israel, dead for millennia, comes to life in God the Father and Jesus the Son, the promise keeper who has waited them out and been faithful to them even when they were unfaithful? The spirit that God poured into the tomb to bring his son alive is the same spirit of grace and supplication that he's going to pour out on the nation of Israel and they will be resurrected as if from the dead. God is not dead and done with Israel. What he is going to do with Israel is going to shake the nations and prove he really is who he said he is. Because if he doesn't do it, He's not God. I have more faith to believe that he is who he said he is than I have faith to believe that we are suddenly the new darlings of the kingdom. How arrogant that would be. I'm going to ask if Jenna would come back. The question is then, okay, well, how do we respond to Israel? Like, thank you, Randy. What do I do with this sandwich I did not order? You know? This is what we do. Because honestly, we're limited in what we can do. But the thing that we can all do is in Isaiah 62, 6. It says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set a watchman. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The role of the church, there are other roles in the church involving Israel, but the primary thing that we need to be aware of and doing, and that we all can do, is the kindness of God to give us important things to do that we all can do, isn't it? The primary thing we can do is pray for Israel. Pray for the salvation of Jews. Pray for the safety of the country. Pray for the uh, pushing back of the neighboring countries that are pressing in. And one of the reasons why this was really important to talk about today is May 7th through May 28th, there is a global call 
for prayer from Christians on behalf of Jewish people in the country of Israel. Now, I'm always suspicious of this, this has never happened before kind of language. You know, I'm just, I'm just a much of a, of a student of history and a skeptic to go, eh. But honestly, something like this at the scale that it's happening has probably never, ever happened before. Because we are more connected and we're able to coordinate with believers around the world in a way that we never could have. This is how quickly things change, okay? Ten years ago, we, could, we had a hard time getting our head around video chatting. I mean, it was a thing, but it was hard to think. Three years ago, when a switch flipped, we instantly had church online, okay? So technology has changed so quickly that we're able to coordinate in a way that we've just never been able to coordinate before. So I have some confidence to say this kind of thing has never happened before. One group that has said yes to this and said, we will pray, is a conglomeration of 5,000 prayer networks around the world. These are not local churches. These are prayer networks. And I say that to say is that's all they do. They're not, you know, juggling the youth group and the, the, uh, the athletic program and the building program. They're literally just groups that said all of our main priority is to pray. 5,000 of them around the world involving 110 million believers all praying at the same season for the same thing. Friends of ours like Lou Engle, Mike Bickle, and others, their prayer networks, others are all pointing their prayer and fasting in this 21-day season, May 7th, starting next Sunday, through the 28th, in prayer and fasting for Israel. And you say, why now? Like, well, we talked about it a little bit at the very beginning, but the political turmoil and protests within Israel are reaching a fevered pitch. There are some talking about even interior civil war within Israel. The UN Security Council members are wanting to establish massive tariffs on Israel, calling it an apartheid state because of the treatment of the Palestinians. They are under pressure from the globe like never before. Israel has been censured more by the United Nations than all other countries combined. Constant pressure. And I'm not saying that the nation of Israel has done everything right. There, there are some things the nation of Israel has done that have not been of God. But the people of Israel are the apple of his eye. And he looks at them with a tenderness that I do not want to miss. Globally, the deputy commander for the operations of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard of Iran recently said, now he's, he's speaking euphemistically here, but he means this. Iran has encircled Israel from all four sides. Nothing will be left of Israel. He also said that if Israel makes a strategic mistake, what's a strategic mistake to an Iranian? Anything they didn't want you to do. If Israel makes a strategic mistake, it, has to, it will have to collect bits and pieces of Tel Aviv from the lower depths of the Mediterranean Sea. This is spoken by the military commander of their nearest, strongest enemy that is working triple time to perfect their nuclear program. They are under a pressure like has not been seen 
in history. So this season of fasting, this season of, season of prayer, it's, it's like Becky said, it's a marker. It's, it's suddenly, okay, we have to be aware of this. And we've got to carry this as a church. We've got to carry this at some level. We're going to talk more about how we're going to do this. I'd love to, to do some organized corporate prayer meetings. Um, I'd love to just invite those of you that feel stirred to step into this fast in any way that you feel led. I'm kind of wrestling, what does this look like for 21 days and how do I fast? You don't have to. Some of you are like, is this mandatory? No, it's an invitation. But these people are important. And God has he's still got promises to keep to them. And when he keeps them, I want to be the people going, yay, God, not why them, not us. Like, I think there's favor on that. So, got just a couple of minutes. This is how I want to close this out. Stand with me, if you would. I want to take just a couple of minutes and pray for the people of Israel. We will talk about prayer points and how to pray for the nation, and how to pray for the future, and all sorts of different things. But for just a couple of seconds where we are, if you would just join in with me and pray for Israel. Some of you maybe have never even thought about doing this before. It's a good day to do a new thing that is important to the Lord. So, Father, we come together and we ask as a church family that you would bless the people of Israel. Right now, that those Jewish people in that little postage stamp of land that is so dear to you, that you gave to them thousands of years ago, and then it was lost and is now regained, that your spirit of grace would rest on them. We pray for Jewish believers living in the land right now, that you would encourage them, that you would provide all that they need, Lord. We pray for the cultural Jews that really don't, follow the calendar, but they're, they're just kind of nominal in their faith, that you would stir them to know more about Jehovah, and you would draw them to your son, Jesus. We pray for the Orthodox Jews that hold so closely to the Old Testament rule, and we pray that you would appear to them in dreams and visions, and you would show them that Jesus is the fullness of the intricacy of their faith, that you are everything that they're looking for. We ask as a church family that you would press back the powers of darkness in surrounding countries. We pray for the safety of those young men and women at the outposts of Israel, standing guard night and day. Father, as they stand guard with military weapons, we stand guard in the Spirit, and we ask that you would protect the land of Israel. We pray, Father, for Jews scattered around the world, that as they look back to the homeland, we pray that they would see the expression of grace on that land, and they would ask, what does this mean for me? And going into these 21 days, starting next Sunday, Father, would you show us how we walk this out? Would you show us our role in standing for these people that you have an everlasting covenant with? And God, even as you fulfill that covenant, we would be reassured that you are still God. 
Father, we love you. And we thank you that you're a promise-keeping God, and we thank you that you keep your promises to other people. Because when you do that, we have faith for ourselves. And we draw as, as branches grafted in. We draw from your promises that you've made to these beautiful people that you have kept for all of these years. We love you, Jesus. And we love your people. And we're grateful that you've grafted us in.